Hello, welcome to the Better Outcomes Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Each episode, we bring you a conversation with leaders across the healthcare industry, exploring topics ranging from new treatment techniques and interventions to novel service delivery methods and business models. And now your host, Rafi Salazar from Rehab U Practice Solutions, a leader in patient engagement and retention strategy. Let's explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Well, hello again. Welcome to another episode of the Better Outcomes Show. I'm your host, Rafi Salazar from RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. And if you're looking for a way to attract, acquire, engage, and retain more patients at your clinic or healthcare organization, you can head on over to RehabUPracticeSolutions.com and learn more about what we do and how we do it and how working with us works. Um, you can find that information at www.RehabUPracticeSolutions.com. That's Rehab, the letter U, PracticeSolutions.com. All righty, on to this week's episode. I am having a conversation here with Josh Pappas from Bioformis. Now, we talk about remote patient monitoring, and I'm going to let him tell you about kind of the, the data and how it all works and really what we mean by remote patient monitoring and kind of the applications for use in clinical settings and what it means for patient engagement and reimbursement and all of that. Bioformis is a digital health company, and it's basically aimed at using software-based therapeutics to provide better outcomes for patients, smarter engagement and tracking tools for clinicians, and cost-effective solutions for payers. So again, when we look at healthcare and the different stakeholders in the game, you've got uh, the four Ps, right? You've got the payer, the provider, the patient, and the policymaker. And any tool that's really going to get mass adoption or really become a viable treatment option or, or tool in the healthcare space really needs to address all four of those payers effectively, or at least meet the needs of all four of those payers. And I know on previous episodes, we had conversations about the what each of those stakeholders desires, right? The different value points for each of those. And it's different depending on where you are in the value chain or on where you are in perspective. Like if you are a a payer, your what is valuable to you is going to be different than if you are a patient, right? A patient is looking for a seamless experience, uh, de- lower as low of a of a barrier to entry or to use as possible. They want it to be pleasant, user friendly. Same thing almost with providers, right? They want to be able to one be reimbursed for it, so it needs to be financially viable for them, but it needs to be something that's going to be efficient for them to use. They can't spend extra time and extra resources implementing a tool. And then payers are, again, wanting to know that if you're going to implement this tool, if they're going to use it, they're going to reimburse for it, that it's going to end up saving them money in the long run. And then policymakers, again, are, are, are worried more about the regulatory impacts of it all. What does it mean for patient care? How does it redefine patient care and that sort of thing? So we talked a little bit about that on this in this conversation. But um, basically, if you're new to the idea of remote patient monitoring, go and read about it. I know we've done some articles on the website about it. We've talked about asynchronous telehealth and remote uh, remote and virtual service delivery here on the show before, so you can go check out some of those older episodes. But without further ado, here's Josh Pappas talking about remote patient monitoring. Well, hey, Josh, welcome to the show. How are you? Doing good. Hope you're doing all right. 
Oh, yes. I'm doing great. Looking forward to talking about remote patient monitoring. But before we dive into that, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself um, and how you got started in, in this field. Yeah, fantastic. So I kind of stumbled upon uh, remote patient monitoring before it was cool, so to speak. <laughs> um, you know, so I spent a really good amount of my early career working at the physician group setting, um, kind of North Carolina and then broader in the Southeast. And so, you know, various different products, I kind of, you know, dipped my toe in the water in the startup world, um, which, which was exciting and some diagnostic genetics. Um, but really kind of, you know, I was in Orangeburg, South Carolina, believe it or not, um, very rural part of South Carolina and um, was talking to a doctor and he asked me, hey, have you heard of this remote patient monitoring? Um, it seems like, you know, something's coming from CMS and um, it kind of unlocked really what I've been doing for the last four or five years, that one conversation. Um, so really I, I uncovered the opportunity, started to work with some earlier stage companies that had some really cool solutions, you know, New York, uh, Seattle, um, really, they were trying to bridge their technology and bring it and get some feedback from the clinician and, and, and the care teams in the ambulatory setting. So, um, you know, through that journey, I was a consultant for lots of different companies, kind of being able to give a pulse of, of what was feasible in the um, in the outpatient setting. And I was an early stage hire um, at one of those companies as well, um, really bringing remote patient monitoring more broadly um, to kind of, you know, groups all over the U.S. Yeah, cool deal. So um, I know that folks have probably heard, at least at, on the periphery, about what patient remote patient monitoring is. But for those who may be new to the to the idea of it, or maybe have just heard about it and are kind of exploring it, can you define for us what is remote patient monitoring and then how it works, kind of from a a patient perspective, and maybe even a, what it does for the provider as well? Yeah, fantastic. So. You know, it's it's important to note that remote patient monitoring in its you know very basic form has been around you know forever, right? Yeah. Um, I, I went to a talk at Health, and you know one of the physicians there said, you know, the old remote patient monitoring was the fax machine, right? Um, so, <laughs> um, you know, so it's 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 evolved, but really, you know, I, I think what what brought remote patient monitoring to its forefront was when you know CMS really adopted um, some newer CPT codes um, because what it did was, and those CPT codes are you know at the core that we'll kind of talk about today is the 99453, the 99454, the 99457, and then you know, most recently the 99458. Um, really, when those came to light, it allowed for more broader adoption of remote patient monitoring because prior to that, there was kind of one legacy code that was a 99091. And it, it, it was great in theory, but the challenge was it actually, you know, was about 30 minutes of the physicians, you know, the provider's time spent, you know, reviewing the data or interacting with that. And, you know, for $60, it just didn't make sense for, yeah. you know, a clinician to spend he or she's time on, on, on that. So with these new codes, um, you know, the Medicare basically expected there to be this widespread adoption. Um, you know, now there was a lot of, in, in typical fashion, there was a lot of confusion and, and ambiguity. Um, so really when they launched it, um, CMS, you, you had some early adopted, I mean, we were part of kind of the forefront uh, with some of the companies I was working for. So there was some good adoption, but it, it left more to be um, really desired. Um, they actually were surprised at the, the the lack of adoption. And there's various different reasons why, but I think that the main reason is there was really not that shift in healthcare. I mean, I can remember sitting in a lot of the early conversations where, you know, we're consulting with doctors and, and said, you know what, Josh, this seems like a you know great idea. You know, the challenges, all the other challenges I'm sure you talk about with, you know, your typical office and, and staffing and this or that. Now this was right around 2019. And I said, you know what, Josh, I think this is great, but 
next year on the cycle, I don't even think Medicare is going to continue to have this, right? You know, like along with other, you know, I think that they're not going to have these codes even in place. Yeah. Um, then what happened is kind of the monumental shift um, was COVID-19. Um, and, you know, that really propelled an already kind of existing infrastructure um, to the forefront in a couple different ways, right? So, you know, a lot of times this was by necessity a way for physicians to be able to connect with their patients when there was no, you know, that period of time when there was really no office visits. Um, but then it also, too, um, you know, in the kind of the ambulatory setting, provided a real lifeline for, um, you know, for getting reimbursement and, and, and understanding, offering a great service to the patient. Um, being able to only really time management, you know, RPM also allowed them from a time management perspective to only kind of address the patients who really needed the attention um, because yeah. there was kind of a lack of staffing. So COVID was a catalyst there. And then I think moving forward now, what I've seen is, is um, you know, is it's, it's somewhat of a mainstay and that's kind of solidified. I, I think we mentioned at the beginning um, to be able to go to health and now it's kind of, you know, what is RPM 2.0 going to look like? Um, but I think um, I've been, I was fortunate enough to work with lots of different organizations, different specialties um, that really embraced it, helped set up. It's, it's certainly not an easy process, but um, have, have seen great results and have kind of expanded their RPM programs. Yeah, because from for a while, RPM was really only for physicians, right? And then these new codes came out and it kind of expanded it to other ancillary healthcare providers, right? Yeah, exactly. And, and to give you, you know, the highest level, right? Um, you know, I always recommend, you know, working with the local mats and things like that. But, but at highest level, really with the codes, um, you know, kind of the different codes. So the 453, if you want to think about it in a very broad sense, it's kind of a setup and education code. Um, so really, it's involving with, you know, consenting the patient. Um, a lot of times in practice, uh, to get the buy-in, um, it, it's, it's really helpful when the physician in office kind of, you know, just has a nice conversation with the patient on what they're going to be a part of. Um, a lot of times with that conversation, the patient is like, wow, this, this seems fantastic. You know, I'm going to get this connected blood pressure cuff. Um, but really that first code is kind of the setup and education and, and getting them started. Um, so that's a one-time reimbursable code. And then, you know, majority of the kind of ongoing codes are the uh, 454, um, which really in spirit of what Medicare does, you know, really wanted to do, right, was to re basically reimburse for providing. They know it's going to be, you have to provide an infrastructure. It's not an infrastructure that really exists in, in, in your traditional, you know, clinic setting. So, um, really what, what they were doing is providing an FDA approved connected device um, and where they've kind of doubled down now um, with, with the nuances of the codes is that, you know, that that basic, whatever vital it is, and it could be blood pressure, you know, pulse ox, weight are kind of the most common. It could be more than that, um, but at least kind of one, um, you know, to be able to kind of stream data at least 16 days over a 30 day period. Um, lots of confusion there, um, you know, there and some ambiguity, but um, I think that that's kind of, you know, the main takeaway is, you know, for greater than one half of that 30 day period, kind of having enough data from whatever data set there is kind of streaming from the patient to, you know, to, to the physician office from a remote um, perspective. And to your point, uh, a lot of the adoption and the reason why it truly is kind of a whole office uh, program is they realized that the stakeholders that were actually running these programs or MAs, RNs, a lot of the um, kind of the unsung heroes within the physician office, uh, they could really, you know, move the needle from a clinical perspective. So the other two codes, are, I'd like to think of them as a communication and interaction, um, yeah. you know, code where it's basically a time code over a calendar month. 
for everything involved with, with dealing with the remote patient monitoring program. So obviously that's reaching out to the patients. Um, the nice part about telehealth programs was being able to you know, be, being able to see a problem and then reach out to the problem, but then be compensated that MA or RN, um, you know, being compensated for their time spent reviewing the data, interacting with the patient. Um, and so, you know, from that perspective, it, it, it's good from a, you know, coding perspective because, you know, it allows for capture of non kind of, you know, provider time that it takes to kind of have a successful program. So a very broad way of, of describing those, um, you know, those codes, but that's kind of the, the, the crust of what we kind of termed in the fee-for-service where, you know, the kind of that, that remote patient monitoring codes and, and who's involved. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you mentioned, so this is one of those, these, this is a type of program where basically you need some sort of FDA approved device, right? So is there a list of, of devices that work with these codes or is it as long as it's FDA approved, you can implement it into your RPM program? Yeah. So speaking from my experience, there's a couple of different ways that, you know, that, that it's been, it's, it's more, it's more the latter, as long as that that's FDA approved device and it's kind of, you know, being able to get that, um, you know, the 16 day of readings, um, you know, that's where there's not some very strict terms and conditions on, you know, what it has to be. Right. And that may evolve in, in some of with the new codes, um, you know, that, that may evolve, but one of the key areas where we've seen really in the outpatient, more chronic RPM setting when the patient has, um, you know, has that, and, and they're not like a high risk patient, you know, because there's varying levels of RPM, right? For a post-acute program, it's really not focused on the codes. It's kind of focused on being more intensive, getting yeah. more data. Whereas in, in kind of, you know, the ambulatory setting, which we're kind of covering today with RPM codes is it's almost wanting to engage the patient, but realizing that, that, that adherence is going to be. So in terms of the device, there's kind of two main types of devices. There's Bluetooth enabled devices. Um, so think about a Bluetooth blood pressure cuff, it kind of, you know, connects to a smartphone and then transmits the data. Well, you know, the challenge is, um, you know, it's a 65 and up, it's a Medicare population. Yeah. So one of the, one of the great programs, and it's not specific to one company, I think it's more widespread now, um, to actually eliminate the need for the connectivity, the challenges there, and they actually use cellular enabled BP cuffs and scales or pulse socks. So um, to, to, to walk you through what that looks like is, um, once they're enrolled in the program, they're sent home, but the device itself is kind of LTE enabled. Um, so it eliminates the connectivity where it's kind of a set it and forget it. Patient takes, you know, regular touch points, um, takes a BP and, and very simply, um, it transmits from device to essentially whatever platform that the, that the provider has. So um, I, I remember being in a lot of the doctor's offices and, and educating the patients and um, they were excited about that. And, and normally that's when you're going to really see the adherence rates go up. Um, and a lot of those are FDA approved devices, uh, but the cellular seems to be a, a great avenue when it's more of a chronic RPM program that, that is seen kind of most, most commonly in the ambulatory setting. Yeah. Cause you're not having to deal with like connecting to an app and doing all that. Um, as far as the, like the security measures. So now you're just talking about transmitting data. Like how is that usually handled? Do most of these platforms, I'm assuming most of these platforms have some sort of encrypted end-to-end -end encryption type deal to protect the data. But is that something that is on the provider to find or are most of these devices kind of just coming out of the gate equipped with this kind of security feature in, in place? 
Yeah, it's a, it's, it's a great question. And I'll add a caveat. I'm, I'm no security expert. However, <laughs> you know, what, what I can, what, what, what I can vouch for is pretty much even as small as, you know, a single provider group up to, a, you know, health system. And I've worked with all of them. Um, you know, th there's usually um, lots of different focus on security, whether that's your questionnaire. So, you know, pretty much the majority of the, you know, of the platforms go through a pretty, you know, rigorous vetting process for, you know, HIPAA, high trust, um, you know, but I, I think Think that the the privacy and the security and the data are um, kind of always forefront of the conversation, and, and it is emerging. Um, I think at a at, at a very basic level, a lot of the you know the FDA and then also to you know FDA approved the devices and the platform itself um, have the appropriate security measures um, on the forefront to um, you know to help the doctors. Um, but that's kind of constantly evolving, and you know kind of the own organization have their varying levels of. Um, you know, kind of security questionnaires, but I've been a part of enough where that that could be the bulk of um, understanding the technology is one, but then going yeah. through the pages and pages of security protocol is a very important aspect. But normally that's done on the front end. It's kind of the vendor vetting process so that once you're going into production, um, all of those per organization have kind of been, you know, check, check in the box, so to speak. Yeah. Well, and we, we kind of mentioned a little bit earlier backing up to like patient adherence and the whole connectivity connectivity thing and getting these devices that are kind of set in, forget it. As far as let's say over the last maybe 18, 36 months or something like that, what has patient adherence to these programs looked like and has it changed with the advent of one, the whole COVID and people not coming into the office or there being more of an emphasis on trying to get these touch points in with these patients? And is it one of those things that we kind of see increasing, like as more and more physicians and physician groups and clinicians begin adopting it, that it's becoming more mainstream or is patient adherence always a challenge with some of these? Yeah, it's a great point. I think probably, um, you know, based on my experience, so some more broad, you know, statistics, right? You know, a couple of different studies, um, you know, here recently, you know, four and five consumers, right? Um, you know, so 80% of Americans kind of favor actually using remote patient monitoring, um, you know, as, as to kind of incorporate into their treatment plan in the primary care, right? So um, I think that that goes to show you that patients are kind of looking for some of those areas and that could be, you know, determined based on, you know, COVID or kind of in response to COVID. Um, so what I've seen kind of at a more basic level in my experience is, you know, patient adherence is is really at the forefront of a lot of companies, or it should be, right? In the companies, I think that are innovating um, there, but patient adherence has lots of different, I guess, manifestations. Um, and so, at the front end, um, it, it's interesting. So, patient adherence um, normally uh, involves kind of adopting into the program, and so sometimes. Um, especially at the beginning, um, it, doctors felt like they were having to kind of almost sell the patient on, you know, on, on, on this program um, being another additional service. Um, so a lot of times, you know, the companies that did it successfully kind of worked in partnership and it was driven by the physician because there's been lots of, um, you know, there's lots of variations of remote patient monitoring, but one of the key um, takeaways that I've seen is, is when it's driven by kind of the physician and, and call it the practice, wherever that is, whether it's primary care, cardiology, um, that actually has a really good way of getting the patient to at least, you know, adopt in, right? Um, when it's driven by the insurance company or something else, that adoption rate really dramatic, dramatically drops, uh, meaning that the physician, you know, the patient kind of trusts that physician relationship. So at a ver just a very adoption rate there. Um, I have seen that 
you know, that, that unfortunately, because of the 16 day requirement to kind of get paid, that is potentially stunted the growth. Um, uh-huh. you know, and, 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 and that's unfortunate because, you know, in some ways, I think it's trying to make sure that there's utilization there and that's clinically actionable data. But, you know, the jury's out on, um, in my opinion, on if every single condition needs, you know, kind of an arbitrary number of, of, of 16 days. Um, but because of that, um, a lot of the a lot of the programs have various levels of compliance. Um, so where it's built into the system to kind of remind and compliant. Um, and then they are also varying levels of services that can be added, right? Lots of companies have compliance level services where either themselves or the office will reach out to the patient. And all of that kind of is captured in that 457 and 458. Uh, because that time kind of the clock is ticking and they can get reimbursed for that time because you know the patient adherence is a very key metric um, for not only the success clinically uh, but also the success for some of you know some of the coding and making sure it's there so um, i would say it's top of mind there but um you know just from a from a patient experience perspective um and i was fortunate enough to work kind of with lots of different clinics and even you know in a pre-covid world or early covid you know working some rpm programs in the office and you know the overall feedback from family members and, and, and caregivers was wow this is such a kind of matter of fact but but an awesome service to you know, especially in some of the rural areas to offer, you know, my loved one. And, um, you know, a lot of times there's patients that were just coming into the office to, 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 to get their, you know, blood pressure taken yeah, or maybe exactly. going to the CVS. And, and so I think in that regard, um, you know, get, getting the patient adherence, but then also to, you know, the patients themselves, um, or sometimes even the family members um, really, r- really supported this program and um, have been on it for a long term time, even maybe after their um, initially were supposed to do it. They want to stay on the program just to have that extra set of eyes. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you kind of mentioned about payers and if it's being pushed by insurance, what about these devices? Like you're, I'm assuming these devices are not cheap, (laughs) especially the ones that are like LTE enabled. So how is that paid for from, from a patient perspective, are they shelling out the money for this? Or is this something that insurances are reimbursing for? Like, how does, how does the whole money side of things work? Not just out, outside of like the, the CBT codes, the, the, the mm-hmm. provider's billing, but the actual device itself. Yeah. So, and, and, and it's a good point. I think that there are, um, you know, there's not a, no shortage of many different, you know, wearable devices just outside even remote monitoring. And, and some are very, you know, specific and, and, and they're broad use case. And now there's continuous monitoring. Um, and so from a, from a payment perspective, that's, that's, that's sometimes the challenge is, you know, in a fee for service world, um, you know, it, it's figuring out, it has to make sense financially, right? Because as, as good as the benefit as it can potentially provide for a clinic, if they're in the red, then, you know, that benefit just kind of outweighs for, you know, for, for the vast majority of kind of the, the, the systems, the way it is, um, you know, and, and so from a device perspective, normally, um, the device themselves is is an important component, but it's less important as the you know kind of the device to a system to be able to kind of view, automate workflow, automate codes, and things like that. So normally, what I've seen in successful programs is you know the device is a kind of you know one-time cost, and the cost is normally to the organization because the way Medicare set this up actually 
is they understand that there's some cost associated with this and that's why they're reimbursing the physicians. Uh -huh. um, but the, the, the cost kind of goes in. So the patient doesn't normally pay for the device, so to speak, but they pay to be a part of the program. And um, normally that's via your traditional 80%, 20%. So the patient kind of is on the hook for a typical 20% copay if they don't have any secondary insurance. Um, and, and that becomes, again, another challenge um, for adoption. Um, you, you spoke about it, adherence or adoption. So, um, you know, roughly it can be anywhere from 10 to $20 per month to be a part of an RPM program. Again, assuming a Medicare patient doesn't have any secondary insurance to be able to pick up, you know, that yeah. and, um, through the, through COVID, there are ways that, you know, you can kind of you know, drop that code, but it, it's a, some uncertainty there. So I, I would say, from a patient perspective, um, it, it does add up. And so, you know, that could be reasons for dropping out of the program. And I know there's a lot of, you know, legislation and, and, and feedback from doctors to figure out a way to um, kind of lower that burden um, potentially in, in the new kind of upcoming cycle year. But um, from a payment perspective, that's there. Now on the, on the physician side, since they're kind of, you know, getting reimbursed and taking on a lot of the cost, um, I think that there's, it, it, it's, it's a difficult way, you know, of, of balancing. We want kind of the best device, but we really kind of want a more all-inclusive platform because the device itself is only one kind of very small minute yeah. way. But what if we want multiple devices? So um, that's kind of, you know, the, the predicament that they go. And I've seen people do it ways where they bundle everything in together. Um, but it, it, it does become a challenge because to, to, to use a specific example on the device, that patient might need BP cuff you know, scale, um, a glucometer. Um, but unfortunately, the way that these kind of, you know, limitations of the codes themselves, that patient can be reimbursed for RPM as kind of a one program, right? Exactly, so from, yeah. a, from, from, from a cost perspective, now, you know, you're running into the red because that patient truly needs all of those devices and it's going to help them from a, you know, from an outcome perspective, but there's the balance, they've kind of shifted the balance and the onus on the um, physician practices to kind of, you know, manage some of those. Um, and some companies really offer very cost-effective ways. The devices, I will say, have gone down significantly in cost, even the cellular enabled, so that it, it still is realistic from a pricing perspective um, with software plus hardware. Um, but 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 it is kind of a challenge, and in, in, in my opinion, somewhat of a limitation um, yeah. to truly move the needle from a clinical perspective when you're balancing kind of the traditional fee-for-service of um, you know, really it's built to kind of monitor one or maybe two vitals. When you have a patient with complex comorbidities, uh, it does become, uh, you know, a, a tough option to figure out which, you know, what, what devices and is it going to be cost effective for the practice? Yeah. Are there, are there instances where, um, let's say it's a short-term use or something like that. And these physician groups are buying maybe three or four blood pressure monitor cuffs or something like that. And then they're sending them out with patients and then getting them back after a certain period of time and, you know, doing their due diligence to disinfect or whatever, and then sending them out with another group of patients. Or is it, are these things really kind of like once they're, once they're in a patient's home, they're in a patient's home and they're, they're not coming back. Yeah. So I, I, I've seen, you know, the, uh, what you described the first, um, you know, with certain, right. So for example, like a glucometer, you know, with blood, right. It's a one-time yeah. use, but for, for BP cuffs and scales, um, there is some, some wear and tear. And I think particularly for short-term use cases, that's exactly what I, what I've seen, um, done and done successfully. And, um, you know, usually that's through a partnership between the, the practice and kind of the vendor, so to speak. 
Um, and it's important to note, very rarely are the actual device vendors the one that are kind of incorporating that. Uh, so lots of different kind of, you know, software companies or vendors in the RPM space, they're normally using different, you know, devices, third-party devices. Um, but in terms of all-inclusive program, what I've seen be successful is exactly what you just described, where, you know, it's kind of a one-time cost and there's some ways to mitigate the costs, you know, because there's the setup code and things like that. And then there's some so, some re re reuse there, but a lot of time that's kind of going towards helping set up a scalable program. And so having those best practices already in place for the office, um, seamless kind of logistics, right? Do you want it to go directly to the patient? Is it going to go to the office or do we have that already? Because, you know, offices don't have time to spend to create those protocols. Yeah. Um, so normally the successful kind of client or vendor and, and physician group um, relationship normally has all that kind of ready to go as a part of the overall kind of RPM program. So that's kind of an easy plug and play for offices. Yeah, yeah. Well, okay. So we've kind of talked about remote pain monitoring, what it is, how it's paid for. Let's say somebody owns a practice and they're all about RPM. They want to implement it. What do they like? What are the steps they need to take in order to get a program, a successful program off the ground and, and sustainable? Yeah, so it's a great it's a great question. So I think you know it's it's a challenging one from a vendor process um, perspective, but I think it's being able to first identify before we even talk about vendors or this or that is, 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 you know, evaluate kind of the bandwidth from a staffing perspective. I think it's super critical to do that first before even thinking about, you know, the patient population or things like that. Now, luckily the advantage, um, so, so doing that step one is, you know, can I do this in-house? Do I have the bandwidth or is it going to stretch me thin with, you know, every, all the other uh, ways I have to deliver kind of high level care there? Um, so establishing that is going to be super critical because, you know, luckily with the way Medicare set these codes up are is they did allow understanding the burden. Um, they did allow other vendors to be able to help out with the kind of the treatment management, the communication and caregiver. But it's important to determine that, first of all, because when you go to kind of choose a vendor, so to speak, or be able to you know, set something up, um, you want to know that going in so that you can kind of you know, evaluate. Um, it, do I need a platform? Do I need platform plus services? Um, you know, I think in a lot of times it's figuring out, do I have kind of the, the, the patient population um, for this, right? And so there's ways to kind of, you know, send out on the front end, be able to send out, there's lots of patient surveys that go out, right? But um, it's probably good to be able to send out as, hey, you know, in my area, would it even be worth it, right? Because if you have, you know, no Medicare patients or, you know, out of the, you know, the hundreds and 500 Medicare patients, nobody wants to do this, then it's probably going to yeah. spin your tires even doing it in the first place. And that's easier said than done. Um, but I think it's, you know, hypertension patients, heart failure, being able to evaluate the conditions that might, you know, be a fit for remote monitoring, because all conditions, you know, right now aren't, aren't necessarily a fit. But, you know, I've seen hypertension, heart failure, obviously, diabetes, COPD kind of be some great conditions um, to start with there. And um, I think in terms of going moving forward, um, to kind of evaluate, there's lots of different, um, you know, advantages and disadvantages. Um, when going in there. But I think from what I've seen, the most successful programs is having kind of a wish list of criteria, um, you know, to talk with your, your staff and, and all the potential stakeholders in the, in the office, um, taking that and then kind of going towards a very targeted vendor selection process, I've seen be good because then you're going to know kind of very, very quickly what you're looking for, not necessarily what everybody else has, right? Yeah. Because um, you know, there's, there, there is an explosion of, you know, of good, you know, bad, ugly, 
um, in, in kind of ways, you know, for lack of a better term, um, you know, ways there. And, and I think it's just, uh, there's just so many data. There's, there's device manufacturers that do things good and there's software that do things good. And so I think being able to have a nice criteria, um, I would say going with cellular over Bluetooth, um, I have seen, you know, firsthand with lots of different programs, lots of different, you know, vendors um, be kind of a very successful way. Um, so it might cost a little bit more, but in the long run to patient adherence, adoption, um, that's kind of a must have, at least in the outpatient ambulatory setting. Um, and then I think from there, it's, it's kind of finding a, um, you know, a, a vendor that's really going to align with, with what you want to get out of a program. Um, in terms of, of that and then having the infrastructure. And then from there, it's really um, very important on the front end to make sure that, you know, things like consent, um, you know, that, that they have a good support system so that when you kind of go live, so to speak, and you adopt this with your patients, um, that you have kind of a team of, of, of trusted experts that, that have done this in other areas and, and know kind of the pitfalls and shortfalls to look out for. Um, and then in terms of, this is just a very anecdotally, you know, kind of scaling up, right, is you're not going to go from zero patients to, you know, to a thousand patients over, overnight. But um, there is kind of a, an interesting period that I saw um, where going from zero to 100 is sometimes, you know, 100 patients, right? Um, it, you know, kind of on a monthly basis or whatever else or kind of adoption is can be a difficult challenge. But kind of once you cross that threshold, we saw it across multiple organizations, specialty areas, that kind of 100 patient threshold um, was a success measure that once you got there, um, you know, it kind of was a little bit more smooth sailing. So um, I saw time and time again, nobody really jumped off the platform and it, it could be a, um, you know, it, it can take some steps to get there, but that was kind of a very, um, you know, kind of a number, a targeted number that, that we saw once we got there was kind of, you figured it out and you could kind of scale and, and had that in yeah. there. So there's lots of bits and pieces in there and different ways to, um, you know, to do that. But I was about um, to say, I, is that because more of the, the organization, by the time they hit a hundred kind of had the processes in place and they were like, all right, we're good to go. We have it kind of nailed down the system. Um, or is it a combination of that in combination with maybe patients talking to other patients and kind of just spreading the awareness, like in the waiting room, so to speak? Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think I think it's a combination of both, but but definitely probably on the office operations. Uh -huh. um, and then from there, I think that there's ways, you know, anytime you can kind of, you know, educate the patient and, 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 and give, you know, leaflets and questionnaire and it kind of spreads, particularly in a smaller community that thing did happen, you know, people were coming in saying, you know, hey, I talked to Miss Smith. And, you know, I wanted to, you know, uh, be able to be a part of this program to monitor my blood pressure. Yeah. Um, you know, so I think being able to have those dialogue and, and, and from a patient perspective, um, a lot of the feedback was is that they just felt more connected to their, you know, to their provider and care team, right. And, you know, a lot of the outreach that was happening, um, was, you know, kind of being able to eliminate the, the unneeded office visits and really focus on, um, you know, you know, we had a great example of a family caregiver and, and, you know, they had three, three siblings and they had to plan their entire kind of weeks and months on taking, you know, loved one to the office, um, for, you know, very basic checks, but, you know, whereas yeah. the remote patient monitoring program, you know, allowed the, the, the freedom and the caregivers to kind of, you know, really feel that same level of connection, but, if there was an issue knowing that there would be immediate reach out and that they wouldn't have to uproot their whole lives to kind of, you know, bring in, um, you know, mom, so to speak. Yeah, no, that's great. Um, kind of wrapping up here. How, how have you seen over the last little bit remote patient monitoring change kind of the healthcare industry insofar so far as like service delivery and 
where do you see it going from here? Is obviously remote patient monitoring is here to stay, but what kind of an impact are we seeing kind of moving into the future? Yeah, so it was interesting. I I, I attended the I, what stubbed as the future healthcare to health conference, and there, it was a, it was a super hot topic. Um, and I think it's important to note that there would have been lots of good early adopters, right? But we're just kind of scratching the surface, um, you know, of, of remote patient monitoring. They dubbed it remote patient monitoring 2.0, which looking back is going to kind of be, you know, what's just called like treatment. Like it's just the way yeah. we treat <laughs> patients, um, you know, which, which, which is really interesting. But, you know, I, I think that the common theme, you know, that, that I see is it, it's going to have to, um, to be truly innovative is there's going to have to be some ways to go outside of the realm of the current payment models, but the payment models are going to be important, right? Is it reimbursed? How is it reimbursed? Is there some flexibility? There's some new remote therapeutic monitoring codes um, that have been kind of proposed in the 2022 that will allow some different specialty areas, some more um, kind of you know freedom and flexibility potentially um, into this remote monitoring. Um, one of the key areas, though, that that, that, that I've seen a focus on. And so some of the companies will really have to be focused on uh, being able to challenge is, you know, very quickly, they said that in a, you know, in a matter of a couple of years could be even you know, less than that, there's going to be more vital data streaming into the clinicians from outside the office or hospital, you know, than inside the office or hospital for the first time ever. Right. And so that is yeah. a significant amount of data that you know has a very good chance of potentially burdening clinicians um, and doing the opposite of really what's the, the the hope of RPM was. And so I think it's going to be very interesting. I mentioned there's lots of different wearables and that's great. Uh, but I, but I think this what's going to be super critical is um, companies that are going to be able to solve for taking that large amount of data and be able to find ways to streamline into the workflow, but but make this data truly clinically actionable to kind of make um, make a difference from an outcome perspective, an economic perspective. Um, so that's kind of what I'm you know looking for, and um, I'm sure there's there's lots of companies innovating in in, in that space. But I think it's going to be super critical because um, you know we we want to make sure that the data is kind of using to create better treatment, not just throwing lots of data into clinicians for sure. Exactly. Yeah, I, I was just consulting with another company that's kind of in the space of wanting to try and and do that, right? Like take all this data that we're getting because we're getting it from everywhere and try to streamline it onto like dashboards and maybe even using algorithms to have like actionable decisions that can be made based off the data, right? Because that's that's like level two, if you would. Like we're just getting all this data now. Now how do we take it and really use it to improve care? For yeah, sure. and I and I and, and I think that that's really you know when a very broad you know term that's thrown around in healthcare is AI and machine learning, but uh -huh. I think that there's some 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 real great um, already existing infrastructure and work that 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 can do that to truly augment the care, right? Where it's not going to be able to pinpoint um, and still needs that clinician intervention, um, but it's just going to be able to you know cut down on the alarm fatigue and and, uh -huh. and truly um, be able to kind of get to the right you know the, the the term the right care at the you know right place right which could yeah. be in the home and we're seeing a lot of that through some rpm and then kind of the evolution uh to be able to watch for hospital at home which you know is, is similar but is kind of a whole nother conversation with true acute level care at home so um I'm, I'm i'm excited to be able to kind of you know consult with some of the clinicians and and be able to you know really involve them in the decision making of, of how this evaluates because ultimately um you know there, there could be a world where it, it does take a little bit of a, of a different you know training method where 
you might have a clinician and a team of care nurses that um, you know that treat, but they're they're kind of monitoring some of the more centralized dashboards, and they need to be able to then kind of shift on how do we allocate our clinical resources um, to be able to take care of large amounts of patients. Where in the past we had to just kind of episodically take care of yeah. you know forty to fifty you know day in day out. Yeah, awesome, cool deal. Well, um, we're getting near the end here, so if there are like one or two main points or takeaways that you would want a listener to walk away with from the episode, what would they be? Yeah, well, I, I think the number one takeaway I have is, you know, is, is a lot of the success on the RPM program um, is, is, is still super important for the, you know, for a lot of the, the pillars of a regular kind of, you know, healthcare relationship, right? The physician, the caregivers, um, you know, they are critical starting place, you know, both from the start of the RPM program to kind of, you know, making it work and making it um, truly make a difference for the patient, right? And so I think, you know, the takeaway there is, you know, patients, um, you know, your doctor might or might not be exposed to, you know, to, to this as a uh, care modality, but they're normally very receptive um, if you ask them to potentially explore it out there um, as, as, as a starting place there. And then I think on the other end, um, you know, a lot of, a lot of the vendors, there's lots of people trying to solve, um, you know, so, solve this challenge. Right. And so I think being able to, um, you know, to keep the, keep in the back of your mind, um, the workflow of a typical, whatever setting you're going into, right. Because a physician office to a health system, you know, keeping, keeping those pain points in mind when you're trying to innovate in the space, I think is going to be, you know, super critical because, um, you know, technology is great, but technology that's out of touch with, you know, really trying to solve a challenge or a pain point and, and truly innovate um, is, is much different. So um, I'm, I look forward to um, then. And, and then also too, the last takeaway is kind of, you know, always kind of, you know, having the conversation with your, you know, local Mac and, and, and the regulatory components, you know, from a Medicaid, Medicare perspective is, you know, they, they actually take in a lot of that feedback. And so it's going to help shape um, kind of the reimbursement um, and, and the payment pathways that are kind of going to be RPM 2.0. All right. Cool deal. Well, Josh, thanks so much for being on the show. If people want to find out more about you, more about Bioformis and all of that kind of stuff, where can they, where can they reach you and learn more? Yeah. So um, I'm pretty active on LinkedIn. Um, so you can just find me, Josh Pappas, um, and I'm happy to share, um, you know, my, my, my email, josh.pappas at bioformis.com. Um, so my day-to-day besides having this you know, weirdly niche knowledge of uh, niche knowledge of, of <laughs> RPM. Um, I kind of work with uh, with health systems and enterprises uh, for Bioformis as a director of digital health. So I'm always happy to connect and answer any questions um, and, and be a value add. So thanks again for having me on. Um, this was awesome. All right, cool deal. Have a good one. Yep, sounds great. You too. Well, I hope you enjoyed that conversation about remote patient monitoring everything that that entails from the regulatory standpoint, from the data standpoint, from getting patients engaged and getting them to use and uh, comply with the tools to clinicians and how you bill for it and use it and implement it in your workflows. There's definitely a lot to think about. It's not as simple as just making the tool available and then hoping that it works, Um, especially when it comes to cutting edge and innovative areas and treatment and delivery methods. It requires some training on the provider side, the payer side, and even sometimes the regulatory side, and then obviously the end user, which is either the patient or the, or the clinician that's using it. 
it's funny, whenever I think about implementing a new tool or a new technology in the space, it's very simple or can it can seem very simple on the surface. Like, oh, this thing is going to make you know, the clinician's life so much easier, they're going to be happy to use it. When in reality, <laughs> there's, there's a lot more at play, right? It has to work into the workflow and the efficiency and it can't cost too, many, too much time or too much resources. It has to be something that the patient's going to actually use and adhere to. It's going to have to be something that payers are going to pay for, right? So it's definitely a tough nut to crack, but obviously the benefits of remote patient monitoring and that sort of branch of healthcare, if you would, are definitely validated and valid and worth pursuing. In fact, you know, as, as many more payers move towards value-based reimbursement schemes or bundled reimbursement schemes where you've got something like um, you get paid a lump sum per diagnostic code or something like that, it's not going to be as easy to do business as usual and just have the patient come in. Primarily, I'm thinking here at like ancillary services like physical therapy, occupational therapy, chiropractors even, where you have just your standard, we're going to see you twice a week for six weeks and that's going to get you over it because the way it's working now is if you're getting paid a lump sum for, let's say, low back pain being the diagnosis, you get paid a lump sum for that. Whether you see the patient 16 times or two times, you get paid the same amount of money. So obviously you can see the incentives changing there on the provider side. But what we don't want is for the patient's outcomes, the quality of service and quality of care to, to decline because of those inadvertent outcomes or inadvertent incentives that are placed um, or put in place by the, by the reimbursement scheme. I know we had uh, Ron Baker and Ed Kless on the show a little while ago, and one of the things that Ed said was uh, incentives matter, right? So anytime there's a new method of paying or a new business model or a new scheme, if you would, for, for reimbursing clinicians for the care that they, that they provide, there are unintended consequences with the, with the incentives that the, that's provided or that's created by that reimbursement structure. So one of those incentives could be, and we actually had this conversation the other day at the clinic that I run, in that we work with a, uh, a managed care organization, and they just moved to bundled payments for specific um, specific diagnoses. Basically, we do an evaluation, we submit that evaluation, and then that patient is then triaged by a nurse somewhere, I'm sure, um, and they're given a level, and that level indicates how much they're going to that insurance company or that payer is going to pay for the entire course of care for this individual outside of something like a research or something like that. Right. So we had the conversation the other day and one of my, obviously my, my billing person was like, well, we just need to stop seeing these patients or we need to double them or we need to, you know, just leave the network altogether because it's just financially unviable. And my way of looking at it is, well, what can we do from a treatment standpoint, from a service delivery standpoint that still provides valuable care, that is still profitable for us so that we're not you know, digging a hole we can't get out of with each and every patient from this payer? But how can we innovate? And we've, we've begun looking and exploring at things like asynchronous telehealth and telehealth service delivery and, and tools like that that we have at our disposal they can still deliver high quality care and still make sure that the patient is meeting their goals, achieving the outcomes that we want them to achieve 
in a way that doesn't require direct hands-on care that costs money that's not being reimbursed, right? So anytime something changes like that, I think the knee-jerk reaction is to pull away from it altogether. But I think if we lean into the discomfort, if you would, or lean into just the the unsteady footing or unsure footing of innovation, we'll be happy in the long run. So that's all I've got to say about that. Anyways, if you like the show, head on over to iTunes, leave us a rating and review. It helps people learn more about us, find us, spread the message, that sort of thing, all that, all that good stuff. You can find the, the episodes that we have on the backlog or in the archive at uh, solutions.com slash betteroutcomes or betteroutcomes.show, and that'll take you to our, our page. You can find all the previous episodes, all the contact information, and, and links for all the show notes and the, and the guests we've had on. You can sign up there and we'll, we'll send you an email whenever we drop an episode. We usually drop them every other Wednesday. Sometimes when I'm, uh, you know, feeling up to it, we'll get a, <laughs> an off season or an off week bonus episode. Those are going to be few and far between here in the next little bit because I am working on the book. Um, it's going to be called tentatively called, well, I'm not even going to tell you what it's going to be called. The, the, the book by me is going to be out hopefully tail end of 2022, just signed the agreement and getting that up and running. So I'm going to be spending every other waking period and free moment that I have writing and completing that book. So look forward to that. Anyways, um, if you want to, I know I mentioned this at the beginning, but if you run a healthcare organization, run a clinic or a department, and you're looking for a way to attract, acquire, engage, and retain more patients, if you're looking for a way to shift the focus of your organization from processes to people, um, reach out to us and, and learn how Rehab You Practice Solutions can help. You can find out more about working with us at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. Um, or you can just go to the site, and I think there's multiple ways. You can either schedule an appointment with me or reach out to, to my assistant, and we'll get you on the books. Until the next time, everyone, be safe, be healthy. I will talk to you then. Thanks for listening to the Better Outcome Show, where we explore the possibilities of a new healthcare. Our hope is that you walk away from each episode informed, equipped, and empowered to push the boundaries in your own practice or business. We want to give you the tools to help you build strong, long-lasting relationships with your patients and clients, helping meet their goals, improve their health, and achieve better outcomes. Learn more at www.rehabupracticesolutions.com. We'll catch you on the next episode.